You're in the right room if you're looking for the uh, CSP's 18th Annual One Month Scholar. We have Professor Mark Dollinger with us. Mark, you have finished, according to my records, how many four programs already? Four programs. Has anybody attended all four? There you go. See that? Has anybody attended three? Okay, so the race is on because we are, we trust you, although I, 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 I see you at programs. In our last program on January 27th, we will find out who attended the most programs. There are, out of the 25 presentations, 18 are different. Now, you will get credit if you go to double programs, um, but the maximum technically is 18, and we will recognize those of you who attend the most with some special prizes, as we will also announce the winners of our CSP Hat Challenge. I know some of you took the hats. I will have more hats tomorrow night and more hats at our lunch program. So if you didn't get your CSP hat, take it with you. You have, I don't know, two and a half weeks to go somewhere exotic with your hat. If you know Barry and Joanne Hannock, they are in Africa right now, taking pictures all over Africa. So um, the latest one was from Victoria Falls that I got. I wanted to thank uh, the Jewish... Um, uh, JFFS, Jewish uh, Federation Family Services, for their uh, three-year grant they've given us to underwrite the one-month scholar program, as well as the Jewish Community Foundation of Orange County for uh, their generous grant. But of course, this is a member event, and it's um, I made this one members only because I'm trying to create real uh, benefit of becoming a member. I mean, the obvious benefit is that you guys underwrite the whole year of CSP programs. This is just a gift back that you get to come to this class and the other class and other spe you know, special programs throughout the year. But I want to thank you because you are the people that underwrite 90% of our budget. We really don't, we don't have any staff. We have no building. We have, we have nothing. We have the back of my car filled with CSP stuff. But um, if not for you, we wouldn't be able to function. So thank you for bringing us to 18 years and hopefully more. Um, also, if you're a member of our Legacy Circle, thank you very much. We have 100 people in our Legacy Circle, and that it will ensure CSP going on in the future. If you haven't joined our Le CSP Legacy Circle, it's a good time to join because we get grants, depending on how many people join, from the um, found foundation and from the Harold Grinspoon Foundation. So we get money now that we can use for programs and then future benefits as well. If you're listening on podcast, I urge you to go to www.occsp.org and make a donation because you are enjoying our programs, and we'd like to continue to put new ones up for you. Um, our, our theme for this month is A Journey Through American Jewish History, and uh, we are honoring David and Ofra Wilnett. I think they made it in here. David and Ofra. Oh, yes, David and Ofra. I am happy to report that David and Ofra, who are longtime patrons, supporters, former board member of CSP, very committed to Jewish education, and you all know that they lived where in 1933? Thank you. Pre-state Israel, Palestine. Only off, uh, I was in Austria. No, you moved there in 1936. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. So by 36, they were both there. And um, did you receive your box yesterday? I want, uh, I, with your permission, I want to thank you all for honoring us. And uh, we have been members of uh, CSP almost eight, probably 18 years. I still remember the first lecture on Baker Street where the Federation That's right. was. And uh, we had to schlep uh, our seats uh, with us. And uh, as it says, uh, and we are glad to, uh, and we are really, uh, really feel honored for this uh, series of lectures being in our name. Thank you.
Thank you, David. Thank you, Oprah. So um, programs coming up this week. Where are we? January 9th. So uh, tomorrow is Thursday. is the beginning of our evening series. As I mentioned, it starts here at 7.15. It is completely oversold, standing room only members, so please come early to get your seat. Uh, then, special program. The first program that was selected for uh, when I announced that Mark Dollinger was coming was Rabbi Rick Steinberg at Sheer Mile, who said, I want Mark Dollinger and I want Jews and whiteness. So apparently it's a very good program, Mark. Um, and that'll be 7.30 p.m. services, presentation 8, 15 p.m., Congregation Shir Hamalo. And then on Saturday, American Jews, Power in Israel in a Contemporary Era, which I'm sure David Levy will, where's David? David Levy will attend. And David, please know that the email you sent me about Democrats blocking support of Israel is a, uh, unfortunately, a misrepresentation of the facts. The Democrats in Congress said they will not vote on anything until the current issue is resolved, even though it pained them to vote, uh, to not support the um, uh, Marco Rubio bill. It had nothing to do with the substance, so please be careful about things that you circulate because that is not true. Let's wait for the real vote to come and see what happens, and you'll see who is supporting Israel and who is not. Anyway, I'm sure we'll be talking about that and other issues. American Jews power in Israel in contemporary era. Congregation Ben Israel on Saturday. We have our special patron event, Saturday, January 12th. If you haven't signed up for that, please do ASAP. We have very limited space. And then Sunday the 13th, what do we owe Peter Stuyvesant, 350 years of American Jewish history in one hour, Temple Judea of Laguna Hills. That's just our relaxing week coming up. And um, other items I wanted to mention, we have a very full selection of programs coming up in the next few months. Um, we are co-sponsoring an event of the Archaeological Institute of America, Orange County Society, uh, with archaeologist Jody Magnus on January 20th from 2 to 3 p.m. The program is entitled New Discoveries in the Ancient Synagogue at Chukok in Israel, which I believe is in the Galilee, northern Israel. Jody uh, started to excavate the Galilee village of Chukok to put, arrest, to put to rest a, a decades-old academic debate. Then she found some mosaics, and the site just keeps on giving. So I urge you to attend. Jody was here a few years ago for CSP. We're very happy to co-sponsor. And uh, we have quite a robust CSP group signed up so far. So thank you, uh, Larry, for um, working on this program and bringing CSP into it. But you should register. You have the registration. The second is um, we have Rabbi Dr. Ariel Berger, who will be coming here to the Federation campus on February 5th from 7 to 9 PM. His topic is Lessons from Ellie Wiesel's Classroom. Ariel was Ellie Wiesel's TA for 20 years. I have read most of the book. It is very impressive. It's a story of his... Uh, this morning he won the National Book Award for that book. He did. He just won the National, National Jewish Book Award? Jewish Book Award for this book. Um, it is a really good book. It really it delves into Ellie Wiesel's life and his, his um, teaching. It has examples from classes, and also you learn about Ariel's um, private life as well. And uh, we are very close to a sellout. So if you haven't signed up, I urge you to sign up because it will be sold out very shortly. Um, we have our adult retreat, 13th Annual Adult Retreat. Gil Chovab is flying in from Israel to spend the day with us at Montage in uh, Laguna Beach on February 10th. So if you are a patron, please do sign up. If you're above the $2,500 level, please tell me ASAP if you want a room at the Montage uh, because I have to get that information in very shortly. Okay, uh, Mark Michael Epstein returns to Orange County for a long weekend. We're hosting him on March 8th uh, for a lunch event 
entitled Lions, Unicorns, and Fiery Dragons, The Art of the Polish Synagogues. It's a program for the community, but also is a preparation program for those of us going to Poland and Lithuania. But everybody is invited. March uh, 8th, you'll be getting information about that. And then on March 10th, Mark is taking another trip to the Getty Villa. Anybody who went with me to the Getty Villa with Mark? He's going back to the Getty Villa. So you'll be getting invited CSP members. It's a CSP member uh, only event and other special guests uh, if there is room. Um, very happy to have artist Andy Arnovitz coming to town. Some of you, when you went on the Israel trip with us, went to Andy's private home in, uh, I think it's Baca. Uh, she is a very celebrated uh, American, but now Israeli artist. And she will be our CSP artist in residence. It's a mini-series March 12th to 13th. Those of you who I emailed some information about note, I changed the date by one day to accommodate some rooming re requirements. And then, uh, of course, we are going to Lithuania and Poland, July 7th through 19th. We have a waiting list that we've started. If you'd like to join us, please see me or email me. I just announced today to our Israel group that went in 2017 that October 18th, 28th, 2020, we are heading back to Israel uh, if we have people that want to go with us in the all-new adventure. I have no idea when the bar bat mitzvah is, but October 18th through the 28th is when we're going. Well, you can do it in Israel. Okay. So... Um, all new adventure. Hopefully you will consider joining us. That one, all of our, let's see, our last uh, three or four travel adventures all sold out. So if you want to come, sign up early. Where do we sign up? If you just tell me, I'll put you on the list and you'll be on the list ahead of everybody. You'll get the first chance to actually register once we create the registration material. As with our other trips, we'll be meeting with the leading uh, visionaries of Israel, people you know, people you don't know. On our last trip, we were very fortunate to spend time with Amos Oz, um, who unfortunately passed away just recently. And uh, in a recent interview that I was listening to, Amos Oz was asked who his favorite contemporary Israeli writer is, and he said Edgar Carrot. And guess who we met with in our last night of our program? Edgar Carrot. That's the kind of quality that we'll be reproducing when we go on our trip. Okay, so please take a moment, take your cell phones out, turn them off, turn them on to uh, vibrate mode. I'm getting close to being on time. Um, I will say a few words about our speaker, then we'll dive right in. Do uh, Professor Mark Dollinger holds the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Endowment Chair in Jewish Studies and Social Responsibility at San Francisco State University. He's an author and expert in the fields of uh, Jewish and American politics, American Zionism, and California Jews. These are all topics we'll be exploring over the next uh, three weeks. A past president of both the Jewish Community High School of the Bay, of the Bay and Brandeis Hillel Day School, Mark serves as academic vice president of Lairhouse Judaica as well as trustee of uh, URJ Camp Newman and the Bay Area Jewish Healing Center. He sits on the California Advisory Committee to the United States Commission on Civil Rights, was named 2008 Volunteer of the Year in the San Francisco Jewish Community Federation, and was awarded the San Francisco JCRC's 2015 Courageous Leader Award for his work against the BDS movement. I should also add, which is not in his official bio, that he's a co-founder of The Kitchen with Noah Kushner, uh, which I think you'll be learning more about because the next uh, eight to nine months, we hope to have Noah Kushner down here teaching with us. And if you don't know who Noah Kushner is, uh, you will enjoy. So please get ready and join me in welcoming our one-month scholar to our opening class series, Wednesday lunch series, Professor Mark Dollinger. Are there any New Yorkers here and New Jersey counts? 
okay, you're not allowed to answer the next question. And uh, by the way, now that we're getting some repeat customers, here's how the rule goes. Uh, I only have four jokes. I keep recycling them, at least pretend that they're funny when you hear them for the second or third time. Um, if you hear a question that you know the answer to, you cannot answer it, nor can you whisper it to a friend, because that would be a violation of the CSP honor code. So the question is, for the non-New Yorkers and non-New Jersey folk, who is, or was, Peter Stuyvesant? Raise your hand, don't call it out. Yes. He was the, he was the governor of the uh, Holland we're 38 seconds in today and you are already the shining star <laughs> of the lunch well done yes Peter Stuyvesant whose image you see in front of you was the governor of the Dutch colony of New Amsterdam which just a dozen or so years later became New York. So sometimes he's mistakenly referred to as the governor of New York, but you are correct, it's New Amsterdam. And of course, you know what, what happens now in terms of the prize, right? So our first prize for today, and for those who haven't seen it yet, yes, we have genuine Jewish studies pencils available. <laughs> if you answer questions well or even have a good question, I think you've won a pencil already, right? Okay, so Ari, if you could. No, that's the first. Is that the first? All right, there you go. All right, I will choose the color for you. So uh, Ari is going to, and, and, and just look at those pencils over there and make them your incentive. So, so here's what happened. Oh, and, and by the way, because Stuyvesant was the, the governor of New Amsterdam, which became New York, if you're a New Yorker, you probably know Stuyvesant because his name is all over the city. And if you're from New Jersey, you went into New York, and there's Stuyvesant Town and Stuyvesant High School and, and, and lots of things. We don't care about all that because we're going to talk about um, the truthful historical history of the guy. And it starts here in the town of Recife in Brazil. Because in Recife, Brazil, the Dutch were the colonial powers but in 1654, they got booted out. So the Dutch colonial residents of Recife had to leave, including about two dozen Jews who were living in Recife. So they get on, and it was actually this very ship, and they start sailing north um, and uh, looking for a place where the Dutch still have colonial influence uh, and uh, that turns out to be the Dutch West India Company, which owned New Amsterdam. Are we all feeling good right now? I only say in that to warm you up because now the story gets um, a little bit sad because it turns out Stuyvesant was an anti-Semite. Yeah, what else is new? Thank you, yes, uh, pencil right there. All right, that's for the honesty that's coming right out, okay, yeah. Stuyvesant did not want any Jews to settle in New Amsterdam, and he proclaimed that the Jews cannot stay. As it turns out, the New Amsterdam colony was set up for profit so that the Dutch company can make some money on the raw materials that were coming out of New Amsterdam that they could ship back to Europe. And uh, as it turns out, uh, there were some uh, Jewish shareholders in the Dutch company. And when the Jewish shareholders found out that uh, the Jews were not being permitted the, the, the right to settle, they intervened. 
There was no internet, there was no telephone, there was no even, not even Morse code. So it takes letters sent by ship back and forth across the North Atlantic, and they negotiated a compromise. And the compromise is called the Stuyvesant Pledge. That is actually a photocopy of the actual document. Some call it the Stuyvesant Promise, so if you've done studies in American Jewish history, it's the same thing. And here's what the promise was. Stuyvesant would let the Jews settle in North America so long as the Jews made a promise that they would never ask the, the company for, for support. No welfare, no social security. That the Jewish community had to take care of its own. So the Jews understood so long as they remain economically independent, they will be able to stay in New Amsterdam. And the Stuyvesant Pledge then becomes, for us, at least theoretically, the idea of what it means to be Jewish in America and how American Jewish history should go. Good afternoon now. It's great to be here for part one of our three-part luncheon series on American Jewish history. I do not like to play favorites, especially since I'm being recorded on a podcast for people who will find so much value that they'll go to the website and make a donation. But I'll say, this is the best course of the month. <laughs> the theme of the month is American Jewish history. We are going to cover American Jewish history over a three-lecture block. So today we're going to cover the largest amount of time from 1654 to 1880 because next week we're going to look at the Eastern European immigration, which for most American Jews is, is the most relevant one. And then we're going to get the last day to look at post-World War II American Jewish history, which I think has the greatest relevance for today. So if you put the three of these together, then, um, then we'll see the whole snapshot. And uh, I realize I actually do have some lecture outlines for folks, if you can. You go to the baseball game, you got to have a program. <laughs> got to have a program, and here's the program. What you're receiving now is a uh, one-page outline. What I do for each and every lecture, for my undergraduates, and also for um, all of you in, in CSP, is offer you an historical question. Then I offer you the thesis I'll be arguing today. And then you get an outline so you know what's coming. For my students, if there's really difficult vocabulary words, I'll put them in the outline so that they can see the appropriate spelling of them as well. Uh, and I always begin with our historical question. So if you look up here at the board, and um, you'll see the, oh, wait. We don't see the historical question. In fact, we're seeing today's installment of the CSP Hat Challenge. Yes, this is the moment for you to be inspired. See if people know where they actually didn't go on the Or perhaps intimidated, and Ari has offered a pencil challenge. Does anyone know where that is? Raise your hand, don't shout it out, because he has to know who to give the pencil to. Who was not there? If you were there on the trip, you're not, you, can't, you can't answer. If that, they, they can't, then you can open it up. All right, any, anyone, anyone know where that was who wasn't on the trip, too? I won't tell you where the trip was. Beit HaTafutzot in Tel Aviv. Excellent guess, incorrect answer, well done. I'll give you a hint, it was from the New York trip. Okay, it was from the New York trip. Okay, it's in New York. It used to be New Amsterdam in 1654. 
Okay, well, that's too much time because we're trying to get lectures. And that's one of the uh, carved gates up near the Bronx uh, Hall of Fame, the Burns Hall of Fame. And those are the newer doors carved in uh, near that area to the Bronx Community College up there. All right, Bronx Community College, home of my father-in-law, so I'll just put that in there for the podcast. Well done. Okay, now we'll get to the historical... Oh, no, not quite. We have yet another CSP Hat Challenge photo. This is a group picture. And I think it should be hopefully a little bit more obvious where that one is. Anyone can tell from the background? Tel Aviv. <laughs> That's humor. <laughs> Times Square. Times Square. And our last. Peter and Gideon. All right. So you have about three weeks left to put your CSP hat on. Go to a fun place, get your picture taken, and compete. And I don't want to intimidate you, but... Uh, I've submitted two entries myself. Okay, here is our historical question. It is on the sheet in front of you as well as up on the board. Um, do we have more handouts? Are there any are there piles of handouts? Um, no, here we go. They're coming in the back. If you have more, we'll bring more. Uh, Professor Bruce Schulman, my doctoral advisor, has a nice um, motto. It's not education until it involves the fire marshal. So I'm pushing that. Thank you. How have American Jewish historians understood American Jewish history from its colonial beginnings to 1880? That is our question for today. How have American Jewish historians understood American Jewish history from its colonial beginnings, 1654, to 1880? And did American Jewish history prove exceptional in this period? Exceptional means different and better than Jewish history in any other time or any other place? That's like the standard question we're going to ask in American Jewish history. Uh, take a quick question, but otherwise we'll do questions at the end. Yeah. No? I thought there was a question. Okay, great. Yeah, so I do. I'm going to ask lots of questions, and they're all rhetorical. They're not meant to be answered, so thank you. Um, because we'll have 15 minutes at the end, and then you, we can ask questions. Here's my thesis. Oh, it's a lot of words. Not to worry. We're going to spend the, the next 40 minutes uh, deciphering them. Contrary to popular conception, colonial American Jews did not enjoy universal religious freedom. Instead, they tended, that meant supposed to be tended, that's autofill, they tended to fare better in mercantilist-based economies and ironically struggled for civil rights in colonies created for religious freedom. In the early national and antebellum periods, Jews benefit from a government and national society that mostly valued and privileged it's Jewish citizens. So for those of you who have um, been around before, we're just going to move quickly through this because we need to understand some vocabulary in order to understand that thesis and then apply it to American Jewish history. All right, somebody who's new to uh, this question in the CSP land, this is the easy question. What is history? You've got to raise your hand. This is the easy one. Got to, got to raise your hand so I can raise your hand so I can call on you. Please, in the back. Thank you. Story of the past. Well done. Uh, and in fact, yeah, so get a pencil back there. You know, usually it's not pencil worthy, but all of you made it pencil worthy in your silence. This is Dahlia. Uh, let's go to the to the challenging question. This word is pronounced historiography. Someone who didn't hear the answer already want to venture a guess. And if you were an English major and you studied word etymology, you might be able to decipher its meaning. Historiography, anyone? Yes. 
Written record, well done. Graphing is writing. History and graphing is a history of historical writing. Oh yes, why use a monosyllabic <laughs> when a polysyllabic will do? Historiography is the study of how historians study the past. And this is the important part for today and for the month. I'm not going to give you a historical timeline with names and dates to memorize, to pack into your brain, and to walk out of here and forget. The purpose of university-level history and the purpose of an academic historian is to take all of that information which is out there in textbooks and critically examine it to understand if we are understanding and teaching history the way we should. Because as it turns out, about every 20 years or so, a new generation of academic historians rewrite history all over again. In Jewish studies, what do you think the topic of greatest historiographic interest, which would be what subject is, has more academic pages published in Jewish studies than any other topic? Anyone want to guess? Yeah. Persecution, specifically the Holocaust, the Shoah. Holocaust studies is the most historiographically rich field, sadly, but it, it makes sense. The Bible would be, would be number two after that. So the way historiography works is the, well, actually, I'll give you my favorite polysyllabic. The word is filiopietistic. Anyone who's new to this talk want to offer filiopietistic? Literally? Oh, yeah, please. Uh, written from the perspective of belief in religion. Very nice. Well done. Um, Filiopietistic is literally love of one's own brother. In a larger sense, ethnic self-congratulations. For us today, aren't the Jews great? Yes, the Jews are phenomenal. The Jews are so good that if you read the historiography, the historical literature, in American Jewish history, when the field first developed, every book has the same thesis, that Jews are great. And uh, frankly, after 20 years of writing books on the Jews are great, if you're in grad school and getting a PhD and wanting to get published and get a job and get tenure, you can't write a book about how great the Jews are. So then what do they start doing in the second historiographic generation? The Jews are terrible. It doesn't matter what topic on the Jews the book is. It's the same thesis. The Jews are terrible. And that goes on for a generation. And then the third generation of graduate students are, stop fighting between good and bad. The truth is it's somewhere in the middle. And then they write there's somewhere in the middle books. And then the fourth generation says, oh, all of my previous scholars, you're asking the wrong question. It's really about transnational history, whatever that means. And then they start all over again. So what we're going to do tonight is look at maybe assumptions you might have had about American Jewish history. Look at how different generations of scholars have approached the question. And it's my job to upset you terribly. You see, the benefit of tenure is I can come here and <laughs> complicate the narrative and deepen learning. 
So I wish to turn it upside down for you and hopefully do it in a meaningful way so that you will have something to talk about and buzz about with your friends. But first, a challenge. In the next three weeks, before I have to end my month here in Orange County, you have an opportunity to uh, win a prize. And all you have to do to win a prize is use the following phrase in conversation. Filiopietistic historiographic analysis. Now you can't say, oh, I went to the brown bag lunch and learn and learned about filiopietistic historiographic analysis. That would be too easy. Instead, you have to have an ongoing conversation with your friend for which the phrase filiopietistic historiographic analysis naturally emerges. So come back, tell us at another lecture, send Ari or myself an email, and you will win your prize. Remember, it's Filiopietistic Historiographic Analysis. Wendy's here. She's actually the one who got me um, to come to Orange County. It's great to see you. And we actually had Shabbat dinner together, and she worked Filiopietistic Historiographic Analysis right into the conversation. So you're our first winner. Well done. Oh, okay, thank you. Okay. So actually, we're going we're gonna to give you a, the level two prize of the pen, which is right here. You know, but just hold on, because I, I want to make sure I can work through this. So, all right. The exceptionalist thesis. This is the first historiographic generation in American Jewish history as well. It says that American Jewish life was different and better than any other Jewish history in any other time, in any other place. <laughs> Jews rock. For the next three meetings that we have, this is the foundational question for your brain. Do you think American Jewish history, has, America, has been a different and better place for Jews than any other time and place? And I know with our honorees who have lived their lives in a variety of places around the world through some tumultuous historical moments, you, know, you are actually what we would call a primary source in that you actually lived through the experience. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk through the history going in favor and against the exceptionalist thesis all I can, trusting you as critical thinkers to come to your own conclusions on whether or not you think it's true. So we're going to begin with elementary school in the United States of America, at least when I grew up in nearby Palos Verdes, uh, and I went to in the PV Unified School District. And we learned in like fourth grade about colonial America. Did people here, if you went, if you were educated, you know, in the U.S. in, in your primary years, did you learn about colonial America? Wasn't it great? A wonderful place. I would call that a filiopietistic historiographic analysis. What you see up here is a Massachusetts Bay colony, and that's typically what they teach in elementary schools or maybe middle schools too. And and well. Here's how the teachers, at least when I was growing up, taught uh, colonial history. There were, there were people living in England, and they wanted religious freedom, and they didn't get religious freedom. So they got on a boat, and they came to America, and they settled a Massachusetts Bay colony, and they had religious freedom, because America is about religious freedom, and it, they were called the Puritans. Remember studying about the Puritans? All right, so that, this is what academic historians call historical memory. That is, we were taught at an early age 
that America was a place, that colonial America was a place of religious freedom, the Massachusetts Bay Colony, Rhode Island, a few others were religious freedom colonies. And if you went to synagogue or Jewish education, they played on that theme to say, America was great for the Jews because it was a country founded on religious freedom and therefore it's the exceptionalist thesis because America is great because it's for religious freedom and American Jews are fantastic and that's filiopietistic and guess what? It's not true. You see, the word Puritan is from the word purify. You only purify if something is dirty. So the Puritans thought the Church of England was dirty, and they came to America in order to purify it. So here's how religious freedom worked. You were free to be whatever religion the Puritans wanted you to be, which was Puritan, which was pure. If their desire is to purify, they are not going to do the opposite of that by having any other Protestant denomination included in their colony. And they didn't. And they're not going to have Catholics in their colony. And they're not going to have Jews in their colony either. In fact, they had a problem with their own children. If you can believe it, sometimes children don't follow the religious precepts of their parents. <laughs> and some of the children didn't even re meet the faith-based requirements to be a Puritan and they couldn't even get admitted into their parents' church. So this is just free information for your CSB sponsorship dollars. The Puritans created something called the Halfway Covenant, which is, okay, kids, if you're halfway there, we'll give you membership, hoping that once you get into the church, you'll go the rest of the other of the halfway. Here's what it means in American Jewish history. Colonial period was terrible for the Jews. Jews did not enjoy civil rights. They did not enjoy voting rights. They did not enjoy property rights. They did not enjoy the right of religious expression. Since we only have a short period of time to cover, I'll tell you, each colony had its own set of rules. And some colonies were better and some colonies were worse. So there was exceptions to what I just said. But the basic idea was that Jews in the colonial period, since they were not the right Protestant denomination, did not enjoy civil equality, and therefore the exceptionalist thesis fails. But wait, somebody will say. Oh, let's hear it. In 1722, Judah Monis was, was named the chair of Hebrew at Harvard University. Born Jewish. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, they made him convert to Christianity before he got the position, and he did. So, all right. Oh, what a roller coaster we're on. We started feeling so good, didn't we? And then, how are we feeling now? A little disappointed. So I think it's time to flip it around again with the word called mercantilism. Mercantilism, it's part of colonialism, and it's the idea that the job of the colonies was to make money. And you make money by taking the natural resources from the colony, exporting it back to the mother country, putting it through the factories and making it into stuff, and then shipping that back to the colonies where you sell it back to the people. When you go back and forth in mercantilism, the home country, in this case it would have been England, 
makes the money. And the colonies are there for the purpose of basically being economically <coughs> exploited, and that's how the deal went. So there were some colonies that were not interested in religious freedom. They were interested in mercantilism. New York was the most important mercantilist base uh, colony. Virginia was also very important because of the trade. So for the American Jews, and by the way, there were only 2,500 American Jews in, in um, America in 1776, almost all of them Sephardic. For the 2,500 American Jews, uh, how are they, are they going to do better in a mercantilist colony or in a religious freedom colony? Ironically, they're going to do better in the colony that isn't rooted in religious freedom because the Sephardic Jews who settled in colonial America were um, part of a transatlantic network of Jewish families in business. And here's the deal. If you're in business and you don't have the internet and you don't have airplanes and you don't have the legal systems that we have for contracts and contract law, and you're going to put a whole lot of money into some business venture, how on earth do you know that you're not going to get ripped off? Well, here, the Jewish ethnic kinship family networks answered the problem. One part of the Jewish family lived in New York, another in Newport, another in Philadelphia, another in London, uh, several others in the Caribbean, all over where the trading is. And if you were a Christian and you needed to like give a lot of money for a transaction across the ocean, you wanted to go to the Jewish merchant because you knew you could trust the Jewish merchant because if they ripped you off, it would be bad for the entire family across the, the transatlantic region. And the family would basically push you out because you're not good for business. And what happened over the decades and even over the centuries of the colonial period is Jewish merchants got a very good reputation for being reliable. And as soon as there was trust in a transatlantic economic system rooted in the Jewish kinship and ethnic and family networks, this was great for the Jews. So we could say that uh, there was an exceptionalist thesis for Jews based upon their family networks and their work in business. And that brings us to 1776. There's a joke in Jewish history. It doesn't matter what the topic is. The Jewish student is going to write about that topic and the Jews, <laughs> even if that topic has nothing to do with the Jews. Mm, it's a zoology class. We're talking about white elephants. And here's the paper, white elephants and the Jews. <laughs> Seriously, the American Revolution had nothing to do with the Jews. There were a few Jewish financiers and political supporters that we will all learn about growing up, um, but with 2,500 Jews who were one-tenth of one percent of the population, everything going on around the revolution was happening for its own reasons, and the very few Jews who were there just happened to receive it. And what was happening was a fear of tyranny, that is, the founding fathers were concerned that the king of England was a tyrant and was ruling over the colonies in a tyrannical way. And they wished for the taxes, as you might remember from grade school, to be repealed so that 
all of the colonists can you know, have ta representation with taxation, as, as the famous phrase went. So in the argument that went back and forth, um, the uh, founding fathers came up with two great ideas. Um, one of them was the notion of natural rights. Any former philosophy majors here? Well, they're in the unemployment line. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Anyone who went to law school then? <laughs> All right. Anyone want to offer us a definition of natural rights theory? Yeah, please. And your name? No. no. Oh, yeah, no, behind you. two attorneys back. All right, great. What's your name? Hi, Mike. Okay, so what's a natural rights theory? So natural rights are that you have fundamental rights that come from some other source, not from man. So they can either come from God, divine, or they can come from nature. Yeah. Yeah. Now, and this is a radical idea that was developed in Western Europe among the Enlightenment thinkers. John Locke and Rousseau were probably the two best known. And Jefferson took them to America during the Revolution and with the Declaration of Independence especially said... In the Declaration, all men were created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and among them are life, liberty, and? Uh, yeah, kind of. It's actually life, liberty, and property was the original <laughs> one. And Jefferson can't have a revolution on property since the colonies were kind of the property of England. So he got rid of that natural right, threw in his own, the pursuit of happiness. But here's what it meant for the Jews. For the Jews, it meant on day one of the United States of America, there would be natural rights for every single citizen. For a thousand years in medieval Europe, Jews did not enjoy natural rights. They were second class, they were not citizens, they were put in ghettos, there was terrible anti-Semitism. So on the one hand, Jews had nothing to do with the Declaration of Independence, because there weren't many around. On the other hand, this was a country that on day one promised natural rights to everyone, and then it got better the U.S. Constitution. A dozen or so years later, the U.S. Constitution said, there shall be separation of church and state. And a separated church and state, and a guarantee of religious freedom. And once again, they didn't do this for the Jews. They did this because they didn't like the Church of England ran the civil part of England. So the way you avoid tyranny is you don't do what England did. And England put church and state together, so America is going to take church and state and move it separate. Many people argue that the best historical moment for American Jews was the U.S. constitutional separation of church and state, followed by the checks and balance system in the Constitution, because basically the more powerful the central government is, historically the worse it is for the Jews. You know, Jews and the king, Jews and the queen tend not to get along most of the time. So if we're going to have a president, a congress, and a judiciary that are all supposed to act in balance with one another, this is supposed to be um, good for the Jews. So we all feeling good about that? I know. It's a setup. You know me well. <laughs> it's terrible. All right. It's terrible for Zionism because if American Jews were born of the idea of a separated church and state, and someone asks you, you know, about Zionism, the answer up until 1915 was, I am an American by nationality and a Jew by religion. The Constitution trained American Jews to define themselves solely in religious terms and not in national terms. Because if a Jew was to have a dual loyalty between Israel and the United States, 
it would threaten the U.S. Constitution. Now, later on, to get you to come back next week, we're going to talk about when that changed and how that changed. But I argue, as great as the Constitution was, it confused American Jews so much because they don't even know how confused they are because they think when they separate their religious and their national identity that that's the way it's supposed to be. But there are not any Jews anywhere in history or anywhere in the world that separate those two out. And if you talk to secular Israelis, and 80% of Israeli Jews are secular, and you ask them what makes them Jewish, they'll hold up their passport from Israel, and that's all they need to do. And that doesn't work in America, because in America we have to have some kind of a religious identity. So let's get by the Federalist Papers. Um, the early national period, George Washington, of course, our founding father, and the notion here was that, uh, that these that we were going to have an exceptional experience. And there is a very famous exchange of letters um, between George Washington and the people in the Newport Synagogue. And with that, um, we have this imprint that our founding father is now countenancing Jews with the best hopes that there will be to bigotry, no sanction, and that this is going to be really good. So that would be a great argument um, for the, uh, uh, the exceptionalist thesis. 2,500 Jews until about the 1840s. And here I will tell you, as I tell my students, if you wish to start a revolution in your country and you succeed, mazal tov, it will be great. If you start a revolution and you fail, get out. And get out fast. It turns out in the late 1840s, there were a series of nationalist revolutions throughout Central Europe. If you look at a map of Europe and see when the countries were created, late 1840s is when most of them all get started. And um, I joke with my students that the Jewish revolutionaries who failed got out and came to America. In fact, in the 1840s, 100,000 Central European Jews immigrated to this country. You may have learned that they were the, the German Jews. They were not, because Germany didn't exist then. It's an oxymoron. We call them the Central European immigrants. They were German-speaking Central European Jews. All right, the 100,000 were not all revolutionaries. In fact, it's the age-old story that the economy was really tanking in Europe. There was the Industrial Revolution in America. There was the need for new immigrants to arrive. And with that, the Central European Jews came. And did they do great. Oh, wait. A moment for the Sephardic Jews. OK, because now, sadly, we're done with Sephardic Jews in American <laughs> Jewish history. Because if you have 2,500 and then 100,000 Central Europeans come, I only do that because some of my dear friends are Sephardic up north. And any time I give a lecture, I don't mention Sephardic Jews. I get very mad. And I said, I know it's tough. But 1840, it got hard. So, um, so 100,000 Jews uh, arrive. and. Uh, and they did exceptionally well because in Central Europe, they moved into cities first. And they learned city skills and urban skills and mercantile and commerce skills. So on day one of arriving in America, they were already 
well-suited to go into the middle class of New York City. They were well-suited to get into business. They had the right connections. They had the right family networks. And just like their Sephardic ancestors, um, they, did, they did really, really well. So um, this would be the factor. Let me uh, move ahead here. Oh, yes. So I get a phone call from Hollywood. And uh, there's an NBC primetime show called Who Do You Think You Are? And uh, they, want to inter they want to talk to me because uh, there's somebody who's got uh, California Jewish roots. And they're going to be on the show. But they can't tell me who it is because there's a non-disclosure agreement. But they start asking me questions. And I'm on the computer. And I'm an academic historian. It took three clicks to figure out it was Helen Hunt. So, so I wrote back an email and I, to answer the questions. And I said, I know I'm not supposed to know who it is. And I'm not going to tell you who it is. Because if I did, you'd be mad about me, wouldn't you? Her TV show was called Mad About You, right? And so I never revealed that I knew who it was, right? And, and so we ended up coming to together and interviewing and sort of telling her all about, and in this case, her great-great-great-grandfather founded Wells Fargo Bank in San Francisco before the family moved down here to Los Angeles, and I got to interview her. So if you'd like to see it, it's who do you think you are, and just write Helen Hunter my name in. I have some bad news. Three months after this aired, the show was canceled. It was number four in the Friday night, it's Arab Shabbat, four, four, number four in the Friday night time slot, which means the Fox show did better than that one did. Um, it's back on the History Channel, and apparently they're, they're, they're still producing it. So, so Helen Hunt's story is the perfect timing of California Jewish history with the migration from Central Europe. Because if you're coming over in 1847, 1848, 1849, and you land in New York, you're getting news from the foothills of the Sierra Nevadas in Northern California that they've discovered gold. And indeed, the first migration of Jews to California came because of the gold rush. And the Jews who came west were so smart, they didn't mine for gold because they didn't think that's where the money was. Instead, they opened up shops to sell goods to the miners who came, and they ended up making a whole lot of money. So here's a few of the miners. Um, that is Levi Strauss, absolutely. The most famous Jewish Californian. Um, by the way, there's a PBS show called American Jerusalem. It's the history of Jewish San Francisco. So if you want to watch that, I'm in that a couple times, telling these stories. And for people who don't understand California or San Francisco Jewish life, you just I say, go watch that for an hour, and then we can talk. And then we can, we can see what's going on. Levi Strauss had no direct uh, ancestors, so he ended up um, his money went to his nieces and nephews, and it went down the generations. And my position at San Francisco State is paid for with Levi Strauss money, the Goldman family. So as soon as I got the position, I went out and bought Levi's, you know, because <laughs> I, I wanted to support the cause. Then I was told um, that they'd actually gone public, and it didn't matter. So I stopped. But then they bought the company back, and it's private now, so I'm buying again to, for, the, for the Levi Strauss money. Here's what happened in San Francisco. In 1848, the population of San Francisco was 850 people. 850. In eight, two years later, 21,000. Two years after that, 36,000. In fact, 
Uh, in the entire state of California, 90,000 people came in, uh, in one year alone. And in, of course, we know in 1850, uh, California became a, a member of the, of, of the union. And with this, we have an exceptional, exceptionalist thesis in California Jewish history. Because Jews arrived on day one of San Francisco and of California, because they were coming from Central Europe with all the skills necessary in an expanding economy, people like Levi Strauss could just drop in as immigrants and become gazillionaires. This is Adolf Sutro. He was a Jewish immigrant from Central Europe, and he became the first Jewish mayor of San Francisco. At one point, he personally owned 12% of the city of San Francisco. Um, he built something called the Sutro Baths in the 1920s. They could get 10,000 people swimming in the ocean water there. Sadly, they had a big fire, but if you go by the cliff house and you look at this view, that's actually the remains of what it was. And uh, Temple Emmanuel was formed right at the beginning of the gold rush. Congregation Share of Israel the same day. Apparently, they had a fight. And uh, half the people left and formed another synagogue. And to this day, the two are fighting about which one actually signed first. And in Congregation Share at Israel, this is the California, this is the cover of my book on California Jews. And it's the story of California Jewish history. Because if you look at this, this is Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, delivering the Ten Commandments from Sinai. This is Shavuot. This is the most important day in Jewish history. Except as anyone who did not already know the answer to this know something unusual about that stained glass window at Congregation Sherith Israel. You have to raise your hand so I can call on you. Yep. Well done. It looks like Yosemite. El Capitan and Half Dome up in the top. Yes, you get a pencil for that. If, uh, if, a, if a picture is a thousand words, this is the Yiddish word chutzpah. Oh my goodness, if you're a San Francisco Jew, if you're a California Jew, you are rewriting Revelation to say that the, that the Ten Commandments did not come from Sinai, they came from Yosemite, which means they, they built the golden calf somewhere near Bridalvale Falls. We're in the Central Valley of California near Fresno for 40 years before they got to Buchanan Street, where that still remains today. If you are a New York Jew and you're sitting here today, this should offend you. And if you were born in California, you're like, yes. Finally, we have historiography, historical writing that's showing American Jewish history from the correct perspective. So um, I think if anyone wants to understand what it is to be a Jew in California, and if the exceptionalist thesis for California Jews goes against New York Jews, we just show them um, this particular uh, image. So. Uh, yeah. California Jews in, I'm doing San Francisco now because LA doesn't start till the 20th century, so we'll get that to the, to the next week. This was a group that assimilated into California life. They got rid of Hebrew. They got rid of being kosher. The Jewish Country Club in San Francisco's biggest annual event is their Crab Fest. <laughs> I just want you to know that when I say that outside of San Francisco, they, outside of California, actually, everybody gasps. <gasps> and then I say, in California, I say that, and they all laugh. And then they gasp that you laughed when they gasped. <laughs> because if you are living the goal of the Enlightenment with the natural rights theory from the Declaration of Independence and separated church and state and religious freedom and economic success like Levi Strauss and political success like Adolf Sutro, why can't you eat crab? 
Why do you need to be a traditional Jew? You can be a modern Jew. And they understood modern Judaism as, as ethics and social justice and civics-based Judaism rather than following the 613 commandments. And they didn't think that was a bad thing. They thought that California gave Jews finally the ideal that they were all looking for. So I will say that California Jewish history is exceptionalist. And you saw briefly this slide, and I have to put it up because there was a key part of the story, which is that these Jews were white. Because at the same time San Francisco Jews were succeeding, Chinese Americans and later Japanese Americans in San Francisco were facing horrendous racist oppression and discrimination. So Jews succeeded for reasons of the Jews, that they were well-trained and situated for business. They also benefit from the fact that they had white skin. And much of US history and California history and San Francisco history um, really, um, really benefits them. Because I argue that American Jewish history is about what part of the country you're in. The experience for California Jews was very different than New Yorkers. And during the Civil War, we found that Jews in Dixie tended to support the Confederacy. And Jews in the North tended to support the Union. And the rabbis in the South tended to find a justification for slavery. And rabbis in the North tended to find, um, in Judaism, arguments against slavery. And when all of that works out, and you go to different Jews in different regions at different times, you're finding that they're all sort of spinning or refracting Judaism in ways that work in the time and in the place um, where they're at. This is um, General Ulysses S. Grant. And during World War II, sorry, during World War II, during the Civil War. That was, oh. Judah Benjamin, thank you. I apologize. This is, right. This is a Judah Benjamin slide. This is, this is to show that Jewish leaders rise in politics in each region. This is um, the uh, Grant's order number 11. General Ulysses S. Grant kicked all the Jews out of Tennessee during the Civil War. It's widely seen as the most anti-Semitic moment in US history, except it wasn't really anti-Semitic. Jews were involved in black market um, stuff back and forth from North and South. U.S. Grant had some Christian friends that wanted the market and wanted the Jews out. So he passed the resolution to get out the business competition so his friends could earn the money. And of course, as soon as Jewish leaders found out, they all sent letters to President Lincoln. And of course, in the time it took for the letters to arrive, Lincoln had already heard about it. Lincoln had already sent an issue overturning it because Lincoln said that's not what America is and that's not what it stands for. And when Ulysses S. Grant became the president, he actually brought Jews into his administration. And he was, up until that point, the most Jewish-friendly US president that we had had. When his presidency ends, when the Civil War ends, when Reconstruction ends in 1877 in the US history side, it correlates with some terrible events in Eastern Europe, the rise of anti-Semitism and pogroms which would bring, in the next 40 years, an immigration of 2 million Eastern European Jews to the United States. But to hear more on that, I'm afraid we'll have to wait until next time. So with that, I'll take some questions. Yes. So Elias Hellman, he came to 
LA in the 19th century. Right. And so will you be speaking about him in any of your... Um, yeah, so Elias Hellman, who was also one of the great founders of California history, who also went to Northern California as well, and, and came back and forth, and I can certainly throw in a little LA history for you on the next time, absolutely. Um, yes? In the, in the picture with uh, Moses in front of Yosemite, what yeah. were the flags? Um, everyone asks about the flags. I don't know what they are. As far as I can tell, and I've talked to the historian from Sheriff, we, we, we don't know specifically of, of any particular meaning for them. It's a good question. Uh, yes? In every, at, in every age, um, there's a different excuse that's given for hate, hatred of Jews. Why did Stuyvesant hate the Jews in New Amsterdam? Was it a religious issue? I mean, is there any, any record of his saying in any, in any written form why he didn't want Jews? Right, it's a good question. The question is why, why, you know, why did Stuyvesant hate the Jews? And, and the sad part is the, the question itself isn't almost necessary because in the 17th century, it was pretty widely accepted that Jews, as those who had rejected Christ, were, were anathema uh, and, and were what's called unassimable, that, that you just can't bring someone like that into your society because, because they haven't accepted <laughs> Right, and and it, and it took the Holland Company um, to intervene, and they ultimately did. And it was because of the the friendliness of the Dutch and the fact that the Jews in Holland had achieved such great success that they were able to intervene against Stuyvesant. So Stuyvesant did sort of get slapped back for that. Yeah. The part of your lecture where you were talking about um, the U.S. Constitution, separation of church and state, the establishment of, of laws of natural rights. It confuses me a little bit as to why Jews, well, I guess my question is, were Jews automatically included as having those natural rights? Because last night we talked about right, the fact right. that, you know, obviously the blacks were not included, the Chinese were not included, and yesterday you talked about the Jews being considered black, even though right, they were Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. So, and, yes, I got it. Yeah. Well, let me answer for them. Yes, that's a great question. So, all right. Because uh, of the limitations of time, I engage in what's called hopeless reductionism, which is mean I just speed through everything, and then I'm hoping in the Q&A time we have that we can get into more detail for what you're interested. All right, natural rights theory said everyone's endowed with certain inalienable rights, life, liberty, and property, or pursuit of happiness, but that wasn't true. America's indigenous people were not given natural rights. Women were not given natural rights. They didn't have the vote till the 20th century. African Americans were not given natural rights because they were in slavery. Um, in fact, natural rights theory applied to northern white landed Protestant men. And the, in the historiography of US history in the colonial period, they're always talking about who you're talking about. Because you have this illusion of natural rights theory when actually it's a very tiny part of the population. And the challenge of America is actually realizing <laughs> natural rights. So yes on that. So where were the Jews? Pretty irrelevant because there were 2,500 up to 5,000 is the most we can get in the early national period on some of the data. So, so we don't really know. But the fact that Jews were white, Jews um, were part of what's called the Judeo-Christian ethic, which means that Christians um, looked at Jews as their an religious antecedents in a good way, because last night I talked about, about in the bad way, they, they, they were seen as more and more a part of the country, and for the most part, did not suffer anti-Semitism in a sociological way. Can I just follow up? Yeah. Could that be because uh, 
as throughout Jewish history, they were seen as useful. So we throw them a few crumbs of pretending we like them and we, and we treat them with respect when really we're using them for their mercantilism, their, what, they can, what they can offer as far as genes and services. And, and that really what Jews like to think now uh, um, as being part of the team, they're really just being manipulated and used. So what you're observing now is what's called an historiographic debate, <laughs> right? Right, so what we have is an historical moment and we have two historians who are arguing about how we want to interpret it, right? And I think that's great. So what you're arguing is called a functionalist argument. It's the, it's the functionalist school of historiography, which says that if you want to understand how or why any group is treated the way it is, you have to look at the function that they serve. In this case, were Jews helpful? And if Jews were helpful, then the Christians will bring them in. And if the Jews weren't helpful, then they weren't. And you could have a whole set of books that argue the functionalist thesis. Um, and, then, and then basically you'd then be letting the next generation of grad students come out and show you how functionalism didn't work here or, 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 or get spun there. Um, from my interpretation, um, I, I don't think that, that, that Christians were thoughtful enough to articulate a functionalist thesis. While I definitely think in the colonial period, if Jews did not have those business skills, they would not have succeeded as they did. That said, the Jews themselves wanted to succeed. They wanted to. Be, they, they they liked the functionalist idea, um, and if that brought them into proximity with Christians, in San Francisco, when Emmanuel went up, the congregation and the place it looked like a church. If you just took the cross down and put a Mogan David on there, it would be the same. And one could make a functionalist argument there, but from the people who built it, they wanted the Christians to walk by and go, wow, that's a beautiful church. I wonder whose church that is. That's not a church, that's a synagogue. Do you see that six-pointed star? Oh, I like those Christians, I mean those Jews, they're great. That is a perfect conversation from the perspective of the Jewish residents, so, yeah. Did your, your first question, or historical question, really, really means differentiate Jewish historians and non-Jewish historians. You ask the question, how have American Jewish historians understood American Jewish history? Right. Is that different from how have American historians yeah, so is there a difference between how American Jewish historians look at exceptionalism and how straight old U.S. historians look at exceptionalism? I'm trained in U.S. history, actually, and then I went into American Jewish from that. The exceptionalist thesis is fundamentally a U.S. history question, which American Jewish historians have borrowed and applied to the American Jewish experience. Um, when, when we would have our eight lecture lunch and learn series, I was going to walk you through each of the U.S. historians and American Jewish historians on exceptionalism to, to see how that goes. But this, it's, it's basically both and. Yeah. Let's take three last Three, okay. I had always thought that the protocols of the elders of Zion, which was very yeah. well distributed, yeah. uh, was a matter of religious prejudice, but recently, perhaps from your material, I'm not sure, I found it was a, a financial objection to the Jews because they were able to not only uh, communicate worldwide, but also to lend money, right. which was against the church. Do you, have and, a, yeah, do you have a question for that, for protocols? Well, I just wondered, is there a reason, or is it currently looked at as a financial 
or a religious. So I will pitch you that I do have talks on American on anti-Semitism. I had one last night, and I'll talk more about the protocols there. The protocols of Zion were the forged minutes of a meeting that didn't happen, where the Jews are apparently in conspiracy to control the world through money and the media. Um, so in that sense, it would be an economic, you know, as well as a business, and it ultimately is religious because it's going at Jews as, as a religious category. Yeah. For the uh, colonies, could you identify which ones were more mercantilist versus yeah, so the, yeah. the mercantilist ones were the ones with big cities or towns on the Atlantic. So that would be Pennsylvania, New York, um, South Carolina, actually, and Rhode Island would probably be the four most important. But weren't more Jews in the South at the time? South, yeah. Charleston, South Carolina was the second largest Jewish population in the colonial period after New York. Uh, and because it was such a big business center because of the slave trade, actually. Last Any more question. Last, Last question. question. Okay, so before we break... Uh, thank you for uh, part one of Jewish history on one foot. So um, thank you all for coming out. Uh, so a quick note. Number one, if you went to New York on our CSP trip, come up here to get some photos with our scholar. Number two, on your way out, don't forget to grab your CSP pen and your pad. You'll need to write lots of notes over the next few weeks. We also grabbed your CSP shopping bags. And please go shopping with them. And people ask you, tell them about CSP and what we do. And finally, so uh, tomorrow night we're in here for our second class series, a different class series where we have specific issues of American Jewish history uh, that uh, we chose. We thought they were relevant to contemporary topics that we're dealing with uh, in the United States today. And then on Friday night, we're going to Jews and whiteness, which is an issue that came up today and will be dealt with in more detail at Shir Hamalo. And then Congress and Israel will talk about everything <laughs> regarding politics, uh, anti-Semitism, America, Israel. Thank you all for coming out and have a great day.